0: Hello and welcome back to travel with Stephen Roundtree, episode one, the Louvre. Uh, we are broadcasting live from the Tuileries Gardens, which many travelers refer to as the Louvre's front yard. But before we start, uh, however, I would like to take some time from you, if you'd be so generous enough, to introduce you to some of my new friends. If they'll have me as new friends, because as Stephen Roundtree Travel, we are about combining the tourist destinations with authentic culture. And authentic culture means you have to find the locals. Case in point. Here in the Tuileries Gardens, which is a bit packed today, we have Parisian locals doing what Parisians do better than any other culture in the world, and that is nothing. Nobody does nothing better than Parisians do nothing. Any one culture can do something with style. Music, dance, traditional garb, but only Parisians can do nothing with style. Let us just examine how all Parisians do nothing with a quick, impromptu, study of all the somethings that Parisians put into their nothing. Take this one random portrait of real-time Parisians hanging outside of my window here this pop-up studio here that the producers at Travel with Stephen Roundtree have set up in the Tuileries Gardens right before my arrival. Just in this one random window, looking out from my studio in Paris, we can see all the somethings that Parisians put into their nothings. Look. This is important because um, it's like my uncle used to say when my cousins and I would do something stupid or dangerous or both at the ranch, like when we used to jump into the Brahmin bullpen and slap it on the butt and then run from it and then jump headfirst over the barbed wire to escape it. And he would end his short lectures with, I can tell it to you, but I can't learn it for you. So let's learn and not just be told from these random real-time portraits of real-life parisians being real-life parisians let's absorb how they cram all that nothing gram i want to start with my friend claude let's take my friend claude here he's kind of strolling down this sort of caliche path here with his red pants sort of slip-on red casual shoes uh, a gray long sleeve sleeves unevenly bunkered up rolled up whatever at the uh, at his elbow he's strolling beside his lady friend uh she's in this sort of black skirt uh Black tube topish thing, almost a, like a boat shoe sneaker. And I don't want to necessarily call her his girlfriend because it's not very Parisian to label love, but they are starting their nothings where so many great Parisians start in a garden is typical Parisian style. Look at that nothing fashion. Only Parisians dress for their nothings with a style that the rest of us can't pull off with our biggest somethings. Like if you had your richest, most famous American actress and she used half of that $10 million per year movie salary to buy the best makeup artists, best designers to dollar up in the pentacle of what a person can be glamorized to be in this country. we us say it's for the Oscars. Then if on that red carpet, a Parisian girl wiggled her way past the cameras, it would somehow look in the opposite effect of our actress as though this Parisian girl woke up in the morning, threw on without looking, the clothes nearest to her and her hair messy but defined because that's how she woke up uh, at lunch at a cafe during casual conversation with her childhood friend then she went, oh, it's the Oscars today, isn't it? I guess I can swing by after a bit of creme brulee if I have time. You have to make it look like whatever it is you're doing that day happens to you so often because you're that cool that you didn't even bother think about your style for this something that is really a nothing because it also happened yesterday. Why would you be bothered to try harder than reaching into your dryer halfway through the permanent press cycle, snatch whatever, because yeah, you're going to the Oscars tonight, but you also went last night and the night before that. There's a shirtless one next to me um, in the Tuileries Gardens next to my little pop-up studio. His name is Pierre. You're probably not impressed. Uh, and you're right. I'm sure you do come across many people sunbathing in lounge chairs at your local neighborhood pools. Noodles and water toys and towels and flip-flops piled up beside them. Yes, but is your neighborhood pool and the front yard of a fortress turned French King castle turned world's most famous museum is the security for where you sunbathe inside a glass pyramid, which secretly marks the spot of the Holy Grail. That's why I tell you how I combine the tourist sites, which let's face it, you are going to see anyway. That's how I combine them with authentic culture, like how a Parisian strolls a path with more style than an Oscar nominee walks a red carpet. And we're going to start with one of the most visited tourist destinations in Europe, the Louvre. So let's talk about how Stephen Roundtree does the Louvre, and then we'll talk about the why. Here is my travel trail through Paris based around the Louvre. Here's how I do it. Do as many of the trail stops as you like. Start and end wherever you like, but like I said, this is how I do it. So here's a trailhead. Here's step one, and it is hot chocolate with Coco Chanel because they call Paris the city of lights, not the city of lines. So if you do not have the Parisian uh, museum pass, then you and I are going to be standing in line at the Louvre as early as possible. And just uh, come here a little bit closer. I want to whisper something to you. The museum opens at nine. So that is when we should probably meet in line. I wouldn't tell you no if you asked me to meet you at 9 o'clock in the morning. I'll just say, get there as early as possible. Pack other Parisian stops into your day after the Louvre, not before, and bring caffeine. It is a well-known cure for mob migraine, or MM, as those of us in the biz refer to it as. I timed the line once. I arrived at 10 a.m. on a weekday and spent 45 minutes winding my way to the glass pyramid. The line only grows as the day grows and I'm sure it's longer on the weekends. And I don't want to demoralize you, but that line you see in the Louvre courtyard leading to the glass pyramid is the line to security. In actuality, the line to get tickets is underground once you get through security, but don't despair though. This is why you have me. Every time I've been, the lines underground are long for the ticket booths, but short for the very easy, self-explanatory, self-serving ticket kiosks. People will stare wonder what you're doing and then flock in line behind you as you make your way to the ticket kiosk either way you still need to get tickets to the museum itself once you are past security once you are through the glass pyramid i was just really demoralized the first time i did the louvre and realized that so you know i'm not saying that flyball is coming for you and you're going to be that despair but you know heads up anyway so once you have your tickets the mob will flash flood down the halls leading to the mona lisa but you and i are going to follow the signs for Café Angelina. At Café Angelina, we'll ask to sit outside on the rooftop terrace. Coco Chanel was a regular at Café Angelina. And now that they have one at the Louvre, we're going to order a hot chocolate for her and we're all going to share it while we look out over the Telerius Gardens and the Eiffel Tower in the distance on a clear day and upon the Arc de Triomphe de Carousel, which by the way, was the shooting location for the movie Funny Face. uh, The scene where Audrey Hepburn took the pictures with the balloons. It's that sort of mini Arc de Triomphe that separates the Louvre from the gardens. Anyway, those photos as shown in the movie is why I say when people ask, and I'm not being smug, when I say the best camera is the one that you've got. You know, if to Tomorrow some digital camera company had a press release that they had some super duper new digital camera and if the picture that they inserted into that article as a sample of what this new camera could do had the same picture quality as the intro scene of breakfast at Tiffany's in terms of color quality, people would lose their minds, including me. So because we're all playing catch up to technicolor anyway, just choose a camera the way wizards choose a wand. Hold a few until one feels right and there are sparks and you'll know. Some of my favorite travel shots have been with little point-and-shoots because the few thousand dollars got left behind because I didn't want to lose it. Oh, or was I? Oh the food here Angelina is good and you should eat here because I mean you're not really here to analyze if a cook left a salmon frying on a pan for 17 seconds too long. But the hot chocolate and the views are stunning and worth it and it's all worth the hour line to get into the Louvre itself. So what better way? You start this overcrowded Louvre then with a hot chocolate Coco Chanel. Coco Chanel was a regular at Cafe Angelina and though technically the one she attended was down the street, who cares? It is still Angelina, it's still hot chocolate Coco Chanel. Plus, if you eat there, it's a little refreshment of hot cocoa and a coffee and you get to the Louvre earlier and beat at least some of the lime because you don't have to get breakfast beforehand. Oh, and they only have like three tables on the rooftop. So if you can't get one, it's no big deal but it's still gorgeous if you have to sit inside and you came to view Paris from the ground anyway. And trail stop two is the museum itself all the paintings and all that good stuff because fueled with hot chocolate, a delicious bass, a little rosé, it is now proper to browse the art of the Louvre. My suggestion is that we start at the Grand Gallery because let's face it, even though there will be 600 people between you and the art, it is the reason you came to the Louvre. So then we'll pick two or three other exhibits, anything that you want to see, any at all. There's no wrong choice, but just stick to two. The human mind can hardly comprehend the geniuses of just one of those paintings. And any of the sculptures could be the subject of a master's thesis, which takes two years to complete. So at some point, the cup is just overfloweth, and you're wasting all that vintage wine spilling all over your blouse and staining it and making it sticky. So then we'll head to the exit doors where we'll step the hell out of this place and right into the Tuileries Gardens where a certain somebody named Paris has been waiting for us. Trail stop three is the Palais Royal because after the mob of the Louvre, I'm desperate for peace and quiet. So I take a hard ride out of the exit doors of the Louvre and make my way through the Tuileries Gardens to the garden of Palais Royal. Speaking of Paris, you know what I love about this wonderful city? There aren't many cities in the world where you answer the question how do you get to one of the most beautiful parks in the world with the answer through one of the most beautiful parks in the world only in Paris darling mwah i loved you anyway historians believe this is the exact path which originated the term parkway a halt for applause and laughter so we're going to cross rue de Rivoli Take a quick right on rue saint honore a quick left on rue des valois and then you are pretty much at the palais royal and it is a quiet and relaxing garden there is hardly anyone here on most occasions except for those in the know which now includes you because you have me at the garden is a rectangle that is surrounded by delicious restaurants of your choosing tucked into pretty much every corner bordering this quiet post bubble oasis under the trees here is a place to eat and to catch up with paris so now you're going to ask me, why the trail? With a trailhead and an exit, and I'll tell you why. Because every good thing has a beginning, a middle, and sometimes just as importantly, an end. And if you ask me, the number one mistake people make when traveling is that they plan a whole lot of beginnings. But your exit is just as important as your entrance, if not more so. It's like when you plan to get to a museum, but you don't plan when to leave. So you just linger and linger like a snowman that gets dirty on the curb and there's brown weeds going through it. Sometimes it's better just for things to be short and sweet and memorable. Anyway, I'll also address another thing while I'm at it, and that is the question that some of my friends are going to be dying to ask me, which is the loop. they ponder. I thought Stephen Rowntree was backstreets and locals and culture. I was under the impression that Stephen Rowntree traded in the authentic. It's true to an extent. The rub lies in the fact that over the course of an average middle-class's lifetime, two or three trips will be made to Europe. Of those, how many days will you spend in one city like Paris? On an average 15-day trip to Europe, you hammer out 5 days in Paris two of those gone for day trips, then you overnight train to a five days in Florence and finish with an hour's train to a couple of days in Rome. Subtract two days for travel, one day for lag, and in all of that, you've spent two whole actual days doing Paris, and I mean really doing Paris or in many cases, it's less than two days. An afternoon, even. I can't tell you how many emails, texts, whatsapps from students studying abroad or business trippers saying, we've decided last minute that we are going to take the channel from London to Paris because like how often are we over here and we only have one day smiley face wing yellow. Oh, and the locals do not call it channel, it's Eurostar. Anyway, I used to respond with, Don't go to the Louvre. Don't spend two hours in line only to be herded through the Grand Gallery like cattle for a glimpse of the Mona Lisa by Da Vinci. There are Ninja Turtle paintings in a million other small and cool museums across Paris. And at cool neighborhoods, I would say. Two weeks would go by. Nothing. Silence. Three weeks. How was Paris? I would text. Did you get to any of my suggestions? Find some backstreet cafe I can try out next time I'm there. This last, I would add, uh, dilute the spugness uh, just a bit, you know. And they would say, oh, uh, oh, you know, we only had an afternoon or, uh, well, you know, we only really had a day in Paris. And the other two days we had day trips planned. And so, you know, we really just couldn't do Paris without doing the Louvre. And then once we were done with that, you know, we, we, we wanted to go up to the Eiffel Tower and then, you know, and then it was time to leave. And that was their time in the most romantic city in the world. First, I don't want anyone to think that I don't think the channel isn't cool. And I do call it the channel because, you know, calling it Eurostar is kind of like, I don't know, it, it reminds me of when people call... America, the States, um, I do think the channel is amazing. You are sitting in London one minute. A few episodes of The Office later, you are sitting in a Parisian cafe. What a sensation. Take the channel, it is cool. But let us look at the realities of what a day trip to Paris via the channel actually looks like. Let us assume that you're an early bird and you get that delicious and succulent and authentic early British worm, which is a good spot on the channel, and then you're there to Paris by 10. Somebody will say, I'm dying to say the Louvre, because it's famous and it has the Mona Lisa and all the other paintings you've ever heard about. You get to the Louvre. It is not close to the Paris train station where the channel arrives, but you make it in good time anyway, because there wasn't a lot of traffic and your Uber driver was kind of cool, and, and he drops you off at the Place de Concorde where Marie Antoinette's cap was dictated and more historically important where Andy from The Devil Wears Prada threw her phone into the water and, and, and don't forget you know that because you know me. I uh, I did go into that fountain and uh, got her phone out and chased after her and I was like, hey, Andy, you dropped your, your phone in the fountain but, you know, she ignored me. All right, so you point out Aptly, as you walk through the Tuileries Gardens and the ponds, next time we are definitely staying in Paris for a few more days, if not the whole trip, and you hit the line at the Louvre and you stop and stand there for an hour. You hit the glass triangle, which the guy on the Da Vinci Code said was a scar on the face of Paris, and then you realize that what you thought was a ticket line was actually just a security line. But since you know me, you sidestepped the ticket booths and went to the electronic kiosk while everyone looked at you wondering what you knew and they didn't. So now it's noon. You shuffle your way past the umbrellas with panda bears on top and you get a glimpse of the Mona Lisa and hold up your iPad and get a picture of it over the crowd of tourists. Check out Lady Liberty on the raft and that giant one of Napoleon's coronation. Not Napoleon Dynamite, by the way, but that would be cool. And now it's noon 30. Then after all the stuff that's in museums all over the world, even the British Museum, which you've already been to, it's now 1.30 and somebody has complained enough about eating so you exit and then after walking back through the Telerius Gardens. From whence you came, it is now 2.30pm and one person busts out the guidebook and another busts out TripAdvisor to find some amazing restaurant except when you google maps the number one and two and three places on TripAdvisor, they're 30, 40, 50 minutes away by cab and that is not cheap and they're not even in the same part of town. You find the closest place that looks good except just like in America where you can find cheap kitsch mass-made restaurant trains who, who have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars hiring interior designers to make it look and feel cool. And they load Americana up and down the walls and import tufted seating from mass-market producers and make it to where you can take a picture of the surroundings and the record playings and say things like, they nailed the décor. The same exists in Paris. For every real antique door, there are four modern doors which have been antiqued. And you end up in one of these places because you saw pictures of it and reviews which said they nailed the decor and it looks so authentically French you can't stand it and so you go there and look at all the stuff some corporate designer decided was what you were looking for in interior design based on focus groups and then you order French nails basted in cheap accountant decided butter. So now it's 4pm. And you have two hours left before your train leaves for England. And so really you only have one hour because you have to be at the channel station 45 minutes early at least because the security line there is airport light. And so you figure that by the time you get a cab or an Uber or something and make your way out there, it'll be 45 minutes But then what if there is traffic because it's rush hour and nobody knows how to do the metro here because you've heard it isn't as easy as the two because, well, it isn't. So your day in Paris, the cultural capital of the Western Hemisphere, was standing in line at the Louvre, seeing a painting from a distance, seeing other things that you can see in most museums in the world, a bad meal, a burnt-out waiter because anybody would be burnt out dealing with awful tourists all day, and Uber fees. That is why I'm starting at the Louvre. That place is not just a museum to me. It's the hospital where Travel with Stephen Rancher was born, where I realized that I had to give recommendations not ignoring the famous sites, but incorporating the famous sites that people were going to see anyway into one larger moment or afternoon or morning. Not ignoring them, but combining the famous sites with authentic culture instead of trying to convince people to do one or the other. As soon as I started combining tourist sites with backstreet cool kid authentic culture sites, people got the famous sites out of their system and then replaced their systems with the realness of the amazing authentic places which still exist in droves in Europe. And that is who Stephen Rountree is. Don't think I didn't try the other way. Don't think I didn't answer emails and texts of what should I do with my weekend or day in Paris with obscure travel recommendations on back streets after pleading not to do the Louvre. It's like a romantic date was my clever analogy. You wouldn't just stand in line and stand on your tippy toes for a glimpse of a beautiful girl, snap an iPhone picture of her and then leave and post a picture of your date with the hashtag #ParisLiving, y'all. No, you'd spend time with her, not in line, but on the grass, in a park, in a cafe. Learn a little bit from each other as the courtship continues because Paris will spend time with you if you do it right. But make no mistake about it, if we're comparing Paris to a date, Paris is like the prom queen who was valedictorian and is going to Harvard next semester on a full ride. She will either ignore you and you're lacking in inarticulate sensibilities, or she will give you the most stimulating night of your life. But it will be one or the other. There is no middle ground, in my opinion, with a girl like Paris. Just show yourself to be a bit sensual aware of your surroundings, polite but not false or shallow, and willing to experience new things and to be taught new things, then you and Paris will have the time of your lives together. Otherwise, she will spit you out. I've learned from my mistakes, grasped the need to combine the tourist sites that you were going to see anyway with the authentic culture that really is usually only one or two back streets away. I no longer pretend that the coolest museums in the world are some of the coolest places I've ever been to, but I embrace them and I do them right and combine the best of tourist and authentic travel experiences. So we're going to start this show with an episode not in a park or an edgy cafe, but the queen of popular touristy museums, the Louvre. Now, we move to a history of the Louvre in a segment that I like to call History in One Paragraph, but much can happen in 800 years in a city that prides itself on being the cultural edge of social progress. So here we go. The Louvre starts life in the 1100s as a fortress for King Philip II of France who was scared of the English back when fortified walls worked against sticks with ends, and then when said walls no longer worked against exploding cannonballs, it became, like many of the best museums in Europe, a big F.U. mansion. In this case, it was the King of France's house when in 1526 he made the Louvre castle his main residence in Paris. When Louis XIV in 1862 moved to an even bigger F.U. house, the Palace of Versailles, he left the Louvre to display the royal art. Then the French revolutionaries opened it as a public museum when, after chopping off a few heads in front of the Louvre, they looked behind themselves and said, what are we going to do with that big old thing? What's cool is, you can still sort of see the rampart bases and drawbridge parts of the original Louvre. That's pretty cool. I mean, drawbridges. The Louvre has a YouTube channel, too, with a wonderful video explaining the history of the architecture. I'll post it somewhere or something. Just look up the YouTube channel um, for the Louvre. And that leads me, speaking of history, to another segment. The history of the Palais Royal, reduced to one paragraph. The Palais Royale was built for the bad guy and the Three Musketeers, Cardinal Richillo, in 1639. Then, when that dude died, it was the king's uh, Louis XIII. Then he died and it was Louis XIV's mom's home. Uh, Her name was Anne of Austria and she then moved to a little place called Versailles. Louis XV gave it to his brother's daughter-in-law. She was Louis XIV's illegitimate daughter with the Marquis de Montespan, the first of Louis XIV's mistresses you wanted to punch in the face on that show Versailles on Netflix, which is awesome. Louis Philippe II in 1780-ish commercialized it into the square of cool stuff you see today, uh, which is the celebrated center of cafes, the modern restaurant originated here, born here. It's really old, really cool, pretty much the first... Of that sort of situations of squares and all that kind of stuff in Paris, one of them, anyhow. If you're interested in reading that dives a little bit deeper into the Louvre and the Tuileries Gardens and the Palais Royal area, David McCulloch's book, The Greater Journey Americans in Paris, will scuba dive you down to those depths. After all, we're not the first ones to have the idea to stroll the Tuileries Gardens and the Louvre and the Palais Royal and all that area. David mentions in his book, uh, Catherine de' Medici. The Queen of Kings built her home here, and basically, she owned a plot of land called The World. And so, if that tells you something of its beauty, called the Tuileries Palace, it was destroyed in a fire. Her uncle was pope. She married Henry, the King of France. She commissioned the first ballet, but I struggle with my opinion of her. I always have. She's somehow related to pretty much everything you do in France, so it's kind of hard to know about her because you get a whole lot of different perspectives. But to me, it comes down to whether she orchestrated the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of French Protestants in 15. Some say it was the Guy's brothers. I really don't know. I did read a sensational novel on this uh, recently called The Column of Fire by Ken Follett, which was a great insight into the realities of living at the time. And I've always thought it was funny how only fiction can put you into someone else's reality. That's why it's so important to always be reading fiction anyway. Also, Oliver Wendell Holmes, notable poet and physician, wrote, The Palais Royal was the great center of luxury and splendor of Paris. and that the Palais Royal was to Paris what Paris was to Europe. Let's see, who else did David mention? Uh, American painter George Healy did a portrait of King Louis-Philippe in the Tulare's Gardens. Tom Thumb and P.T. Barnum strolled here. Harriet Breacher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote in her journal at the Tulare's Gardens. Um, David also mentions the odd tidbit that uh, it was an artillery park when the Germans surrounded Paris in 1870 and trapped 2 million people inside when Parisians resorted to eating rats and sparrows. Let's see, who else did David mention? Old Nathaniel Willis met Morris and James Feminard Cooper here on at least one occasion, according to old David. Let's see, old David mentions uh, Charles Sumner, who strolled here. Uh, he was an anti-slavery senator from Massachusetts, a radical Republican during the Civil War, but I'm not sure if he strolled the gardens of this area before or after he was keen for his anti-slavery speech. I'd like to think he was inspired in Paris to give a speech like that, but you know what? I'm going to end this show on that because there's nothing more Stephen Roundtree than relating an anti-slavery senator with gardens in Paris and a hot chocolate with Coco Chanel in world's greatest art, in my opinion. I mean, that is what we're looking for in Stephen Roundtree Travel, so you know what they say. See you at the cafe.